The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. morning. Welcome again to Morgan Hill Bible Church. I thought Dustin was inviting us all to Hume for a second. I got really excited. And then he was like, junior. I was like, oh, I'm too old, man. What a bummer. But you probably could be a leader if you want to be a leader at camp. Probably it's true. So say welcome again. So good to have you here. If you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and open it up to the book of Luke chapter one. Luke is in the New Testament. If you're new to Christianity or the Bible, it's the third book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And we're going to be in chapter one this, this morning, starting at verse 30. We are starting this new series that we're going to be doing the next four weekends called The Songs of Christmas. And, you know, I picked the title for a few reasons, one of which is because there is no season and there's certainly no holiday that is more celebrated by music than the holiday of Christmas. Right, And I don't know what your you know, rules and restrictions are on when Christmas music is allowed in your house. Some of you are Christmas music legalists, right? And it can't happen before Thanksgiving. Others of you are more gracious and you just listen to it whenever the heck you want. And that's okay. You know, wherever you fall yourself in, you know, Christmas and music go hand in hand, right? And it's kind of, I don't know if you've seen, for me, I've seen a lot of jokes this year that, you know, what happens the day after Thanksgiving is Mariah Carey comes out of hibernation and exists again. Right, Because you don't hear anything about Mariah Carey for 11 months out of the year, and then suddenly she shows up back again singing, All I Want for Christmas is You. And it's interesting because literally she could not do anything for the rest of her life because I looked up this week. Did you know that that song, every Christmas season, makes about $2.5 million just from it getting played? So she's made over $60 million on that one Christmas song alone. Don't you wish you wrote a good Christmas song? You could sing like her, right? So we, we have these songs, and, and in Luke chapter 1 and 2, what is very interesting about the, this gospel is there are four songs that are sung by different people around this Christmas story. And it's a, a very unique section of scripture because of the songs that are sung in it. And so each of the next four weekends, we're going to pause and we're going to look at these songs that were sung, starting up from the announcements of the birth of Jesus and John the Baptist to after his birth as well in Luke chapter one and two. And so to set us up this morning, we're gonna, we're gonna look at the beginning of the story here before we jump into this song. Now we're jumping in mid-chapter in Luke chapter one to catch you up on what happened the first part of Luke one, if you don't know the story. And so it starts with the birth of a guy named John the Baptist is foretold. And so an angel shows up to Zechariah and he tells him that Zechariah, your wife Elizabeth is going to become pregnant. She had not been able to have children for a long time. And so she will become pregnant. Your son will be John the Baptist. He'll prepare the way for the Messiah. Fast forward six months. Later, it says in verse 26, that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel showed up to a girl in the city of Nazareth, a girl, she was probably 12 to 16 years old, would be our guess. This is a very young woman that the angel showed up to, to a girl named Mary and told Mary, hey, you are going to have a child as well, but this child is from the Holy Spirit. You will give birth to the Messiah. You will give birth to the Messiah and you will call his name Jesus. And, and the, the, her response to the angel is there. And then we pick up the story in verse 39. Immediately after this angel has come to Mary and Mary says, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me. It starts by saying in those days. And what this means is this is like right after this has happened. 
So it's not like the angel appeared and then this is six months later. This is like that same week, that same month, pretty much immediately after Mary finds out this news for her and her now cousin, Elizabeth, is going to be six months pregnant is where the story picks up. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now we see this response of Elizabeth to Mary as she enters in. And we see that it's twice mentioned. It's told in the narrative that the baby leaps in her womb. And then she herself tells Mary this. So Elizabeth is six-ish months pregnant. So she is clearly pregnant at this point. And this baby is leaping. And that's a sign of recognition of the Messiah. In fact, if you look back to the Old Testament, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, it says this, But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. This idea of leaping with joy is a recognition of God and of his work. And so this child leaping within her womb is the sign, is is a recognition that this is God. God is now in her presence, not Mary, but this child that is within Mary. It's quite amazing that the first two people outside of the angel who appeared in Mary who knew, the first two people to recognize Jesus on earth were an unborn child and Elizabeth, right? They, they understood, they recognized who this baby was that was within Mary. Now there is a commonality why this infant or still newborn baby who wasn't even born yet, excuse me, who would be John the Baptist and Elizabeth recognized who it was. And that was both of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. See, it, it said of John in Luke chapter one earlier in this, in this narrative that we skipped over in Luke chapter one, verse 15, talking about the son that Elizabeth is carrying. It says this, he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with this Holy Spirit when even from his mother's womb. Why does John the Baptist leap in his mother's womb? Because the spirit has already filled him and he recognizes an an infant child in the womb still recognizes that this is Jesus and leaps for joy. Why does Elizabeth recognize who this is? Or why, why does Elizabeth recognize, okay, this isn't just Mary, but why does she recognize this? Remember, Mary is showing up within days or weeks of this announcement. Mary is not obviously pregnant. Right? Elizabeth's not just some crass person who commits the mortal sin of asking every woman if she's pregnant, because if she's not, you just been at a really bad thing, right? So it's not like she just walks in and is like, hey, cousin, you look a little big. Have you been uh, eating too much or something going on here? Right? She, she has no look of it, but why does she know that she's pregnant? Well, it tells us in verse 41, and Elizabeth was what was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she recognizes that this is the Messiah who has come. And so she says, why is it granted for me? See, in their time and in their culture, much more so than than in our world, God was held in such high esteem and high honor. 
If you look through the Old Testament, why was there so many details about how God was to be approached in daily worship? It's not, they weren't being legalistic. It was God was held in such high honor and high regard that she is overwhelmed with honor, the fact that that the Messiah would come and would visit her in person. And then how she names it is, is remarkable. In verse 43, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She identifies this one month old in utero child as my Lord. Why is it granted that the mother of my Lord would come to me? In Luke chapter one and two, which are the infancy narratives or the birth story of Jesus, the word Lord is referred 23 times to refer to God. 23 times in just two chapters, Lord is referring to God, the God of the Old Testament. And here Elizabeth takes that same word that if you read Luke 1 and 2, you see Lord is everywhere. And she says, why is the mother of my Lord? Elizabeth said, this child is the son of God. That's what that saying is. This is, this is the son of God. The mother of my Lord has come and has visited me. And in response to what Elizabeth says and showing up at her house, we have in verses 46 to 55, what is known as the Song of Mary. You may have heard this referred to before. It's a well-known passage as Mary's Magnificat. What that is from is the Latin translation, which was the predominant translation used for centuries in the church. The first word of the song is Magnificat or magnifies. And that's why this song is titled this. And it's interesting, this, this song picks up on a few things. It carries on an Old Testament tradition of singing in response to what God has done for them. If you know your Old Testament, you have a song of Moses, the song of Miriam, of Hannah, of Deborah. David sings psalms, and psalms are filled with these songs of worship and response back to what God has done. But a song is also an invitation for us to be a part of this story with Mary. See, scholars kind of point out, and this illustration helps me so much. I hope it helps you. They say, you know, in most of the narrative, we, we are kind of observers of what is happening in the story. And they say, think of it as if you go to a play, right? And in most plays during a narrative section, the actors and actresses, they're looking side to side, right? They're talking to each other. And you as the audience are an observer to what's going on. And then what often happens is when a song comes, what do they do? They stop, they turn, and they sing. What are they doing? They're now inviting you to be a part of this story. What they're saying is this song is now bringing you in. And it's saying that these songs in Luke 1 and 2 are doing the same thing. They're inviting us to worship and write alongside, participate in this story with them. So what is this song that Mary sang almost 2,000 years ago? It's this, Luke 1, starting at verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servants. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, 
to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. In this song of Mary that we are going to look at, we're going to see three characteristics of God's working. As Mary reflects on what God has done for her and in her life, three characteristics that flow throughout, and there's so much more that we could hold on to here, but three characteristics of of how God is working in Mary's life that we can also praise God and participate with her. The first is this, is that God's working is profoundly personal. God's working for us, God's working for his people is profoundly personal. And why Mary sings and why we have reason like Mary to sing and to worship as well. See, it's it's easy to look at Mary's song and to think, well, this is so unique, right? Because none of us are gonna give birth to the Messiah, right? Like none of us, I'm sorry if you think you're special, you're not like this special, right? Like this is one of a kind, like no one else gets to be like this. And so it's like, well, okay, you know, but, but sometimes I think we, I don't know about you, but I often neglect the challenges that other people's face and just notice their positives. And I neglect my own positives and focus on my challenges. Here is a young girl who now will be stignified, marginalized, who will stand out, right? Like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm pregnant. No, I'm not married. It was the Holy Spirit. And her friends are like, right, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is not like, oh, this is going to be some cushy, easy life now that she has to live. And she she's now entering into some hardship and confusion for herself and that other people will look for her, but she reflects on what God has done for her. She says, my soul magnifies or glorifies or exalts. It makes great the name of God. Why? Because my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. See, what Mary has done is she's taken the truth that she's learned and knows to be true of God and she's applied it directly to her life. God is not just a God who saves people. What is God to Mary? God is my savior. He's done this for me. He's not just a God who saves, but he is my savior, that that he has looked on me. He says he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. See, her song is a response, not primarily because she's pregnant or how God will use her, but it's in response to this salvation that she knows will come through this child that she is bringing into the world. That this is the method of now God's salvation is through this Messiah. When she says that he's looked on the humble estate of a servant, she's not just talking about the fact that she would have been most likely on the lower side of the social scale, that she would have been a poor person. But it's this idea throughout scripture that God looks at those who are of humble hearts, of poor in spirit. She's picking up here already on this idea that this son will say Jesus in Matthew chapter five, verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are lowly, who are humble, who acknowledge and recognize their need for God, who see their need for help. They are blessed. And she sees her blessing and finds herself in a low estate, but it magnifies God because of it. See, for Mary, she recognizes this truth that we must learn to grasp. God is not just great in our world. God is not just great to other people. If you are a follower of Jesus, God's greatness is expressed individually and strongly to you. God is not just great and awesome, but he is great to you. 
See, every attribute of God is not just true. It is true in the fact that it's true expressed towards you in God's relationship with you. And the key to having a worshipful life, the key to responding to circumstances like how Mary is able to hear overflowing in gratitude and magnifying God is recognizing the profound impact of what God has done for you. Notice that phrase in verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Every Christian is able to sing that line and have it be just as true as Mary sang it 2,000 years ago. God who is mighty has done great things for me. And worship connects this head knowledge of what we know to be true about God with the personal nature of how we recognize God's character to be true revealed in our lives. See, when we worship, we recognize, yes, not only is God all-powerful, God is all-powerful in my life. And we recognize the power of God that's led and guide us. We recognize that, yes, not only is God an omniscient and all-knowing God, but God knows me better than I know myself. He truly, truly knows me. You know, it's, it's taking, okay, God is a gracious God and full of compassion. Okay, but God is gracious to me. He sees my sin and my mistakes and he gives grace to me. It's recognizing, yes, God is love, but he doesn't just love in an abstract way. God loves me. He loves me where I am. And God's working towards us is profoundly personal. Do we worship in such a way, knowing with our hearts that these characteristics of God are true towards us as Mary did as well? See, if it's just true in general, it's hard to worship. It doesn't mean that much. But when we experience it in profound personal way, like how Mary has, like we all have as followers of Jesus, it moves us to worship. That God has done great things, not just in our world, but God has done great things for you. The second characteristic of, of God's working that Mary magnifies God for and shows in this is that God's working in our world is often a mighty reversal. Mary picks up on this beautiful theme that we've seen all throughout scripture of this mighty reversal of how things look one way, but God will change it. God reverses things and will do something different. Notice what she says in verses 52 and 53. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. She's moved here from this individual talking about God's goodness towards her to God's general goodness and action towards others. And these verbs are, aren't just past tense, like this is how God used to. The idea is this is how God has always done it and continues to operate in our world. That's the, the, the tense of the verbs here. And she sets it up with this mighty reversal of God with a phrase that, that can easily go past us in our understanding. In verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He's shown strength with his arm. Now, like, I don't know, probably when I was a teenager, I read that, I'm like, so what is like God up in heaven, like flexing in the mirror, being like, oh yeah, there we go. Like, what, 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 is, what is Mary saying? God has shown strength with his arm because we don't use that expression. What is she referencing back to? Well, she's referencing back to, for them, the most powerful display in their time when they thought of a God of power they thought of God bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. 
And if you just search in a Bible app, just search the word arm, you'll see some random references and stories, but you'll start to see it suddenly starts to show up a lot in Exodus and Deuteronomy and then later pointing back to this time. Some samples of this in Exodus chapter six, verse six. This is Moses about to be sent back to, the, to, to Pharaoh to where the people of Israel are. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burden of the, delip- of the Egyptians and I will deliver from, you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Near the end of his life, Moses said this in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse eight. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. The prophet Jeremiah, looking back, said this, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. See, Mary sets up this idea of God's reversal by using this phrase that in their time for a Jewish person was known as this is the power of God is seen in his arm. This mighty reversal of what he did for us, bringing us from slavery in the land of Egypt, delivering us to the promised land. And because of God's power, he's able to do these things in which she talks about. It's actually interesting, um, her, her song, especially in this part, the Song of Mary, is very similar to another song that was sung by a woman hundreds, thousands of years earlier, hundreds of years earlier, a song called the Song of Hannah. And we see this in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2 is the Song of Hannah. And Hannah was, was a woman who actually, she had an, her husband had two wives. And you see that in the Bible, you're like, bad news is coming real quick, right? That's always like the setup for a struggle. And her other, the other wife had all of these kids and Hannah had none. And it says that she was mocked. She was ridiculed because of this. And her desire of her heart was to have a child. And so she goes and she prays. And finally, finally, her prayer is answered and she has a son. And in response to it, she sings this song, a portion of which is contained in 1 Samuel 2. And she says this, the Lord makes poor, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world's. See, what Hannah is singing, what Mary is singing is that because of God's power as his people, we cannot underestimate what God can and will do. When we are God's people and recognize God's power, we cannot underestimate what God can and will do in our world. We shouldn't underestimate him. As I was thinking of, of man, when, when have we underestimated or an example of underestimating something and being proven so wrong, my mind immediately went back to this week to someone who became famous, I think it was about 12 or 13 years ago on the show, Britain's Got Talent. You may, I think we have a picture of her. You may remember this woman. Her name is Susan Boyle. Um, she showed up and I watched the clip again this week. It has over 260 million views on YouTube, this, this clip of her in the show. And she is at one of these talent shows and she's introducing herself. And, you know, I think, I think it was Simon Cowell, right, who's always kind of like the bad guy in the shows, asks her, what, what do you want to be? And she's like, I want to be a professional singer. And they all kind of like roll their eyes. 
Fred's like, oh, sure, who doesn't? They ask her how old she is. She's like, I'm, I'm 47. And they're like, why, why aren't you a professional singer already? No one's given me the chance. And they're like, well, yeah, there's a reason no one's given you a chance, right? Like, they're like, yeah, you, you probably can't sing. You don't really look the part per se. You know, like, hey, if the Spice Girls are calling for replacement, they're not probably calling Susan Boyle, right? Like, they're like, you know, okay. And, and there's just this eye rolling. And then she starts to sing and their jaws drop and hit the floor. Right? And to this day, she has sold over 25 million records and had the highest selling album in 2009 across the world. But when she was first introduced, there was this huge underestimation. She, she's nothing. Like, what, what is this? This is another gag. This is a joke. But she proved them wrong. See, God is the God of reversals. God is the God who takes the low and raises them up, who takes the poor and gives them Riches, not physically, but spiritually poor and makes them rich. Think of how God has worked throughout history. We see this all the time in what God does. When God picks the line for the Messiah to come, who does he so often pick? He picks barren women. Like, why, why does God do that? Women who can't have children. Oh, that's where my Messiah is going to come from. It's like, wait, God, you picked the wrong person. Nope, because I'm going to do something crazy. Think of even when, when it comes time for a king. Who does Israel pick as their king? They pick someone who looked the part, right? He was the really tall guy. I wish Ben was here this morning. I'd give him a hard time, right? Like, he, they pick the tall guy who looks the part. Wow, that's the king. Who does God pick when God shows up to David's family? All his brothers are there. David's not even invited to the party. Right? All the other brothers fit the part. But when God picks someone, it's totally different than how other people would. We see this all the time throughout how God works in our world. We see it most clearly in the cross of Jesus. Where is the greatest victory over sin and death ever accomplished? Well, it's through the death of Jesus. And shame on those who underestimated God when Jesus was laying in the grave. Because man, were they proven wrong just a few days later. See, God is a God who does drastic reversals in our world and can make a drastic reversal in your life. So I don't know what place you find yourself in this morning. I don't know if you're in a good spot with God or maybe I'm sure if we were honest this morning, there's some of us this morning who are in a desperate place, who are desperate for God, who aren't happy with their circumstances. Don't underestimate the power of God in your life. He has the ability to do and the track record to do the amazing and the remarkable, and he can make a powerful change in your life. God's working is often a mighty reversal. And Mary sees that and glorifies God for it. The third characteristic of God's working in this passage that we see is God's working is faithful and true. God's working is faithful and true. And we see this in how Mary closes her song, verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. What is she referencing there? She's referencing this promise of God for the Messiah and she references it all the way back to Abraham. She's probably thinking of one or two passages. Genesis 12, verse three, a promise to Abraham when God first calls him, he says this, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Later on in Abraham's life, 
God says this to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is talking about the Messiah that Mary looks back and sees God's faithfulness all the way back to Abraham and what he's done. In fact, Elizabeth, her cousin, recognizes Mary's belief in this. In verse 45, notice what she says, blessed is she who believes that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessed are who believe that God is faithful to his word. And so much of what Luke is doing in, in these narratives here, introducing the birth of Jesus into it, is he's helping us to get right away. God is a God who does what he says he will do. God is a God who does what he says he will do. God promised the Messiah all the way back to Abraham and God is faithful. God does what he says he will do. And because this is so true, because this promise has been proven over and over in scripture, it's been proven over and over in our lives, we can place our solid hope on what God says he will do. But here's where the challenge is for a lot of us, including for myself. I don't know about you, but what I often place my hope on is what I want God to do. Not what God's promised to do, not what he's promised how you will. What I place my hope on is my expectations of what I think God should do in any situation or in my life or in some circumstance. And I say, it would be great if God would do this. And then I get my hopes up. And then I don't know about you, God often does things different from how I expect it. Am I the only one or is that true in your life? Oh, it's not just me. Okay, right? And then what, what's easy to happen? Be like, well, God, what happened? Well, n- nothing happened, right? I was placing my hopes not on God, but on the expectations that I had for him. See, think, think back to it. If, if you're married this morning, why, why are the first years of marriage so challenging? They're good and they're great, but why are they so challenging? It's often because of the unspoken relational expectations that you have carried in with you into that relationship. It's not like you get married and suddenly per, this person you married drastically changes. You're like, who are you? What's going? No, it's, it's that you had these expectations of what marriage, of what being a husband, being a wife, of what this life would look like together, most of which were so subtle that you didn't even express them because you didn't know they were in your heart. And suddenly all this angst that you're feeling is because these expectations are coming out within you. Now, when does it get better in a marriage relationship? It gets better that these unmet expectations are saying more about you than they are the other person, right? It's not their problem. It's, it's your problem that you have to deal with. See, for many of us, our biggest challenge in following after God is that he doesn't meet our expectations of how we think he should do things. It's that we think God lacks this way and we think God should do this in my life and then he doesn't. And so we tell ourselves, well, God's, God's messed up on this one. God's made a mistake here. I wanna do it that way. I asked for him to do it a different way, but God did it this way. And what happens is we need to go back and remind ourselves that we can place our hope on what God says he will do, not on what we expect or how we think God will act in our world. That he's the same God. He's faithful to his promises. But when we place our hopes on our expectations of God, what we're really hoping for and what it's showing in us is these false idols of security that we've tried to place on God, but rather we're trusting in those idols rather than actually trusting God himself. 
I mean, think about it. You think this is what Mary expected for her life, right? This was the last thing anyone could expect. This is the one time in history this has been done. This caught her totally off guard. This was not the trajectory she had for her life, right? She's thinking, all right, me and Joseph, we're gonna have a family, we're gonna be all that. And suddenly like an angel shows up, boom, life drastically different. Not at all what she expected. But that didn't stop her from praising and seeing the faithfulness of God still in her life. So I just wanna ask this morning, is your faith, is your trust on God and what he's promised? Or is it on the expectations that you have of God? Maybe you're here this morning and you're angry at God. You've been really disappointed. I just wanna ask you, is, is that because God's actually failed you or just because God didn't do what you thought he should do or would do? Because God's ways are not our ways. His love goes beyond what we could ever imagine. His goodness extends through all of eternity and we don't see it when we're in the little midst of our lives and our problems and our pain are right in front of us. And it's so hard when our expectations don't line up with what God is going to do. But scripture reminds us, and this story reminds us of this, that God does what he says he will do. He is faithful and true to his people. He's faithful and true to Mary. He's faithful and true to you. The God will do for you what he's promised. And sometimes that doesn't line up with how we've thought he should. That doesn't change the fact that he's faithful to us. God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us through every day of our lives. And God, may our response to your goodness and your mercy for us be that like Mary, who recognizing the salvation that she was going to receive, cried out, my soul magnifies the Lord. That she rejoices in the God of her salvation. God, may our lives be so attuned to you and the work that you've done in and for us that we too could sing a worship song like that, that our lives are all about bringing you honor and glory because you have done great things for every single one of us. And we praise you this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.